0: In your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter, chapter 2, please stand. In 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have in former times spoken by your prophets and now have spoken by your Son, and we thank you for the word that you have given to us and ask that you would cause it to dwell richly in our hearts, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water, bearing much fruit in season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How often do you find the Christian life to be easy? I suspect that if we took a poll, most people would say it's sometimes easy, but usually that's not the case. And so, when things aren't easy, how do you persevere? How do you endure in your faith? When your classmates tell you that you're old fashioned because you believe in some fairy tale religion, how do you endure that? When your employer tells you that the hate speech of Christianity will not be tolerated in this workplace anymore, How do you endure that? When your relationships seem to be marked more by failure than by success, because your commitment to Christ seems to get in the way of things, how do you endure that? You see, endurance is a concept that we might often think of in conjunction with things that that are great, great acts like Antarctic voyages or endurance races. Perhaps your mind goes to an Ernest Shackleton sending out a call to sail to the Antarctic in a wooden ship for fame and glory. Perhaps you think of a marathon runner who, for no conceivable reason, stresses his body (laughs) to go run an insane amount of distance to win this prize. Or perhaps your mind goes to Carroll Shelby behind the wheel of his Aston Martin in 1959, gritting through the 24 hours of Le Mans and crossing the finish line first to the cheers of the crowd. But what comes to mind when you contemplate endurance for the sake of others, as opposed to your own glory? What gives a person the strength to endure for the sake of others? And what does that endurance look like? Well, this takes us to our first point in verses 18 through 21, the nature of endurance. Peter begins with a call to submission and endurance that challenges even the most seasoned of believers. He addresses his audience as servants. The New Testament uses many different terms for servants. Perhaps you're familiar with Paul, who calls himself often a bond servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, and that's a fairly narrow term. But what Peter uses here is actually a very broad term, perhaps the broadest term for servanthood. In fact, this term for servant was commonly employed to refer to anyone in the household who wasn't the master of that house. So certainly actual servants, but spouses were considered in this category children, sons, and even daughters, and, and sons who would one day go on to be the master of their own house, were for a time considered to be this kind of servant. And so when Peter begins this way, he's addressing everyone at some point in their life in his context. Everyone has this calling. And by addressing the audience in this way, Peter immediately calls to mind two things. One, he's not thinking of his audience as the one who has ultimate authority. So right out the gate, pride gets a pretty swift kick in the chest. He doesn't address them as kings. He addresses them as servants. And then the second is that he takes the language of Isaiah 52.13, the start of the suffering servant's song in Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And he applies that language now to the saints. And so with, with this idea of servant in mind, he gives a command. Be subject to your masters with all, literally, Fear. The word there ties back to verse 17 where he says, It's clear who you are to fear. He says, Fear God. And so this, this fear is directed to God, or to think of it in another way, because you fear God, be subject to your masters. And so it's not a fear of our master that's in view, but rather a right apprehension of our relationship to the living God that drives our willingness to submit. But what of this? What of this being subject that Peter says? Well, this is a common theme throughout Scripture. Being subject appears time and time and time again. In Daniel 7.27, all dominions serve Christ. Same term. It's the same word that's used to describe our Lord Jesus in Luke 2.51, when he's found by his parents in the temple and he returns with them and subjected himself to, to them. It's the same word in Luke 10, 17 when the 70 return and rejoice saying that the demons are subject to them. It's the same term in Romans 8, 7 when Paul says that the mind of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not subject itself to God's law. It's the same term in Romans 13 when Paul instructs the Christians to be subject to governing authorities. It's the same term in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says that all things are subjected to Christ. So then it's plain that this being subject is in fact a very serious type of submission that's twofold in Scripture, to God and to human authority as instituted by God. And this idea of submission is woven throughout the warp and woof of Scripture and is here applied by Peter as the task of the Christian. And then this submission then, because of the fear of God, is directed to our earthly masters, to those in positions of authority over us, both to the just and Perhaps, like me, you might often wish that Peter would have just stopped there. Submit to just masters, the end. That would have been great. But he says, also to the unjust. And this sense of unjust is perhaps even a bit stronger than we might want it to be. Because this is unjust morally. This is corrupted, twisted, bent. This is, in fact, the same word that we use to get the name for our disease, scoliosis. It's twisted. Masters, this morally corrupted leader. And this crookedness that Peter is describing is also well known to Scripture. It's how Deuteronomy 32 describes this crooked and twisted generation. It's used time and again in the Psalms by many authors to describe wicked men whose speech and paths are crooked instead of leading to the Lord. It's even used by Job to describe himself in relationship to God as he is crooked. Now, because this verse has been twisted in the past, it bears note that this is not a command to stay in an unsafe environment. This is not a command to avoid trying to improve a situation, but it is a command to be salt and light in the world. The context of the command is a realization of the brokenness of the world into which Christ has come to save sinners. And as will become plain as Peter progresses through the passage, this is a note that the twisted, morally corrupt master that Peter describes It's really each of us before we're saved by Christ. And so how does Peter describe this God-fearing submission to a crooked master even? In verse 19, he says that it is gracious, or perhaps you could take it as this is grace, Peter says. It's gracious that through mindfulness of God, you would endure. And how does this work? How does this mindfulness of God work? Well, your eyes are fixed upon God. Rather than looking at the one who afflicts, you look to the one who sustains. And this takes us to verse 20, where Peter speaks about suffering. For if, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Peter doesn't say acting foolishly and receiving a fool's reward is commendable in the sight of God. He says that's, That just makes sense. And pretty much everybody would agree with that. You drive through a speed trap, and you get a ticket, and you tell your friends, I can't believe you got caught. You know, I I got a ticket. And they say, well, how fast are you going? 150 miles an hour in a 25 outside of a school. And they say, well, you, you should probably pay that fine. That's not what Peter is commending here. Rather, he says suffering for righteousness But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is gracious in the sight of God. And Peter was a good Presbyterian. He knew the Westminster Confession. And so he knew that what he's commending is works that are done in faith, according to God's law and for God's glory. If this describes the circumstances of your suffering, then God is declaring it to be gracious. And if God is declaring it to be gracious, who are we to say otherwise? And so Peter is calling And commending this endurance even through unjust suffering. So what is the sum of verses 18 through 20 but endurance? Because this is the purpose of our calling by God as we see in verse 21. Now Peter also anticipates the question that comes. How can this possibly be? How can you tell me, suffer and endure, you've got to have something else to say than that? And he does takes us to our second point, verses 21 to 24, Christ's endurance. You see in verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ's suffering wasn't on his own behalf. He didn't suffer because he owed anything. He suffered for you. He suffered because he knew you couldn't pay what was owed. And more than that, he left an example. And this example language that Peter uses here is the kind of language that would immediately resonate with anybody who'd gone to school at Peter's high school. It's the kind of thing where if I say conjunction-junction, you just know what I'm talking about. Because Peter is using the term for an example that every student has spent hours and hours and hours carefully and meticulously copying. You look to the perfect manuscript, and you sit down with your parchment And you have to follow the example. You copy every line, every dot, every form of every letter until your copy looks exactly like the master copy, like the example. That's the term that Peter uses. That's the imagery that's in mind, is copying Christ's example diligently, faithfully, line for line onto your heart. And then because he's an apostle, and if you are an apostle, you can mix your metaphors, he says you can follow in his footsteps, Follow in Christ's footsteps. This is, this is the comforting thing of not being the lead man through a dangerous piece of terrain. If you've gone up to, to Daily Ranch and hiked around, perhaps you've walked down a little slope that's a little bit sandier than you anticipated. Perhaps you've walked with someone else and said, step where I step. and If I fall down, then don't step there. <laughs> right? But we can see that where Christ has put his feet is solid ground because he's trodden it. And so Peter says, put your feet where Christ put his feet. Follow in his footsteps. Copy his example onto your heart. Suddenly the command seems to be a little bit heavier than it even appeared at first. So what does this endurance look like? What is this example that Christ has given? Verse 22, not only did Christ not sin and deceit not be found in his mouth, which are things that we do without provocation, We don't need someone to cut us off at an intersection to sin. We can wake up in the morning and just pursue sin. Because in our fallen state, that old man lives in our heart. Christ had none of that. And he was perfect and sinless. He did not sin, even as we are so prone to do. But when provoked, also Christ did not sin Also, the words of Isaiah 52 come back, my servant shall act wisely. Because the schoolyard second grader that lives in each of our hearts, who at the slightest provocation is so ready to say, I know you are, but what am I? That person does not live in Christ's heart. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We might think of this in terms of slander. This term revile is a little bit opaque, but slander is a little bit closer to home. That corrosive, painful experience of being maliciously misrepresented, being mocked, Christ endured all of that silently. He felt no need to tweet back, as it were. And when he suffered, he felt no need to threaten. And just imagine that. The Lord of glory, is, as Paul describes him in Corinthians, the eternal second person of the Trinity, being mocked, spat upon, beaten by soldiers, soldiers whose very being he is holding in existence, being struck by a rod that he is willing to continue to exist, the one who had every authority to say, no, I'm done with this, stop. And not only does he not stop his suffering on your behalf, he doesn't open his mouth to threaten them. But like the lamb, silent before its shears. He goes willingly before us. And as Peter appeals to the imagery of Isaiah 53, he calls to mind the image of our Lord as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and not reluctant to do so. Not dragged unwillingly to the cross against his will. No, Peter moves to the pivotal moment of the passage in verse 23. And in verse 23 he says, He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And now Peter has changed the imagery again. So we're not in the schoolroom anymore copying. We're not on the trail following in the footsteps. But now we're in a courtroom. This is legal language that Peter is employing of entrusting himself. Handing himself over is how you could consider this. The servant walking into the courtroom stricken, smitten, and afflicted, walking down the aisle by himself in front of the judge and handing himself over, knowing that all the guilt, all the sin will be credited to him. This is our Lord. This is what he's done for you. He took our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He took the full weight of sin, every last bit, and willingly bore it on the tree. By his perfect life and perfect sacrifice, he gives you his perfect righteousness. He turns away the wrath of God that was against you and your sin. He removes the guilt and the burden of sin that weighs you down on your shoulders. Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that you trust? Is this the Messiah that you know who loved you that much? And have you known this kind of love? If you haven't, then turn to him. Because he's not far off. He's not waiting for you to get your life together. He's not waiting for you to become good enough. You can't become good enough. He's waiting for you to call out to him. He beckons to you to come. The time to be reconciled to God is now. And if you know Christ, if you know this Jesus, if you know your Savior who has this love for you, then you know the truth of your calling. You know that we are called to walk in this newness of life. This life that's called to be marked by love, love of God and love of our neighbor Because the grave could not hold Christ back. Because he didn't stay in the ground. Christ was raised from the dead. He ascended to the hand of the Father. And even now, he is sovereignly strengthening, governing, guiding all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. By his Spirit, he equips you to begin evermore, evermore, to live as he is called. Is there anything that he cannot heal? Is there anything that he has not healed? This is our Lord. And so with a God like this, with a Savior like this, what can we fear? What can threaten our standing with a God who loves us like that? And So perhaps you ask, what is the effect of this kind of endurance for us? Or you think, of the words of 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And this takes us to our third point in verse 25, the end of endurance. And Peter once again calls to mind the language of Isaiah 53. He says, For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This straying that Peter speaks of. Perhaps you've seen animals straying about. They don't really seem to have any idea where they're going. They're just meandering aimlessly. They don't really have anywhere they want to get to. They just have places they want to get from, it seems. And that's who we were. Isaiah 53.6 says that we were sheep going astray. We were just moseying around. Nowhere to be. Cut loose from our corral, we wanted to go anywhere except where God was calling us. And if you've ever tried to get livestock back after they've escaped, you know that this is a very relevant image. The moment the gate is open, they're gone. It's amazing. They've been sitting still all day, and then they're just gone. And someone has to go get them, because they are not coming back on their own. And that's our Lord this perfect spotless lamb who offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice because he did not stay in the grave has become our shepherd. So as the lamb becomes the shepherd, we, his sheep, are saved in him. And this shepherd cares, feeds, instructs, guides, and governs you, his sheep, because he knows that sheep without a shepherd are short-lived. There is not much hope a sheep on its own in the wild. Perhaps there's no more well-known or poignant imagery, though, of this type of shepherd than the imagery of Psalm 23, where David speaks to you, saying, the Lord is your shepherd, so you shall not want. He makes you to lie down in safe havens. He feeds you. He refreshes your soul. He protects you, even in the presence of enemies, and he assures you that his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and then our God will make you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the Jesus who cares for you. This is the type of shepherd who gives you the security to withstand the flaming darts of persecution, to endure even the pain of submitting to a crooked master. Because your eyes are not fixed on the crooked master. Your eyes are fixed upon the author and the perfecter of your faith. Our shepherd conquered the grave. He rose again. He ascended into heaven in victory, and now he is your overseer also. R.C. Sproul takes this word overseer and translates it as superlooker. This is the one who looks very, very closely at you. There's nothing that escapes his gaze. And more than that, he's not simply watching you, he's, he's guiding you. He sees all the things that you go through, and he guides you and protects you and preserves you. And he promises this to you. In the last words of Matthew 28, Christ promises that he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So with this Jesus watching over us, there is nothing that can threaten us. Because he is ever vigilant, ever loving. This shepherd perfectly keeps his sheep. And so Peter draws a logical connection there that we are not above our master. And so as Christ was a servant, we also are called to be servants. And as Christ entrusted himself to God, we entrust ourselves to God. And as Christ endured, so also do we endure. And it's good to keep in mind because the 1 John 3, 1 quote that we are children of God has an end, doesn't it? The world does not know you because it didn't know him but he is able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for you. Coming to his own and rejected, Christ entrusted himself to God and bought heaven for you. This love, this care, this selflessness is Christ's heart for you. And so we see that for Peter, the starting point really isn't submit. Logically for Peter, that's not where he starts. The starting point is really See Christ. And he's clear, Peter is clear that submission to authority is absolutely in view here. But he's confident the point doesn't need to be browbeaten. Why? Because when we apprehend Christ, our Savior, rightly, we begin to see that there is nothing that can separate us from His love. There is no threat so great that it can shake the grip that He has upon us. His endurance bought Him His people. Who can separate us from this Savior? And so, we are freed to glorify God in our lives. And we count it even as a joy when trials like our suffering bear witness to the love of God manifested in Christ. We seek, like an attentive scribe, to copy Christ's example onto our heart because He equips us. He sends His Spirit to indwell us and to lead us in this way. And we seek to follow where he has put his feet because we know that that is safe ground. We can do this not to earn anything for ourselves, but because Christ has already earned everything for us. And so what is the, what is the endurance of Ernest Shackleton in the Antarctic compared to this? What is the endurance of the marathon runner compared to this? What trophy in racing can compare to the life that Christ won for you, his people. How do you persist then when the world says that your calling is nonsense? How do you endure when the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you love and cherish and revere, is treated as hate speech in the world? How do you continue when time and time again you're confronted even by your own failure, your own weaknesses? How do you get up again when you see your own shortcomings and how You submit when those in authority over you truly are crooked and unjust. Beloved, you entrust yourself to God. And you can entrust yourself to God because Christ Jesus himself loves you perfectly, even now. And he loved you perfectly when he engraved your name in his hands at the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us your word that we might know you truly. Thank you for indwelling us by your spirit that we might be made alive in Christ. We ask that your word would dwell on us richly, that you would equip us for the task that you have laid before us to entrust ourselves to you and to submit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand and turn in your Psalter hymnal to number 517.